Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Hey, what's up, Solutioneers? Welcome back to the Indisposable Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Prindeville, and today I'm really excited to welcome Atlantic Packaging's president, Wes Carter, uh, and their director of sustainability, Caroline James, into a discussion about uh, extended producer responsibility, about what CPG brands and packaging suppliers are doing, and this pivotal opportunity that we have to catalyze uh, the new reuse economy as momentum is surging in state legislatures around tackling the growing packaging waste crisis. Uh, so Wes is the third generation leader of Atlantic Packaging, which is the largest privately held industrial packaging company in North America. Um, he's launched an impressive sustainability initiative aimed at significantly reducing plastic-centric packaging uh, and replacing them with more environmentally minded, often fiber-based solutions. Uh, he's launched a New Earth Project, which is a collaboration between the packaging supply chain uh, and the global surfing community to help reduce ocean plastic waste. I'm specifically excited about diving into that. Uh, Wes is an outdoor uh, avid outdoorsman. He's a lifelong surfer uh, and a traveler who resides in Charleston, South Carolina. And under Atlantic Packaging, Carter is a part of the Conservation Alliance, the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, Sustainable Forestry Initiative, and CDP, in addition to other local and regional organizations aimed at fighting the waste crisis. Uh, and Caroline James is a circular economy professional that's focused on helping the packaging industry create truly circular packaging solutions. Uh, she joined Atlantic Packaging as the Director of Sustainability in 2022. She's got a background in consulting and completed an MBA at the Yale School of Management, where she also took coursework at the Yale School of the Environment. Uh, she also holds a degree from Georgetown University. So Wes and Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us, Matt. We're excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. So, Wes, I've been told, uh, you know, by your team that I have to be careful about asking you about the history of Atlantic Packaging because we could we could be here for a while. But I'm actually really really intrigued um, about the history of the company and and how you came to find yourself at the head of it. Uh, absolutely, yeah, it's it's my favorite story to tell. Um, but yeah, my grandfather uh, W. Horace Carter. Um, Founded Atlantic in 1946. Uh, my grandfather grew up in a teeny little town outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and he was the first kid in his high school, in the history of his high school, to go to college. Oh, wow. Um, he got into the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, and he went up there to be a writer. Um, when, he, when he got to school, um, he went to the admissions office and said, hey, I'm Horace Carter. I'm here to go to school, but I don't think I can afford to do it. And um, they said, sure, you can afford to do it. You're just going to need to work. So uh, while he was in school, he got a job at the Daily Tar Heel, uh, which was the university newspaper. Um, he fell in love with journalism. By the time he graduated, he was the editor of that newspaper. And then when he got out of school, his dream was to start his own newspaper. Um, so he moved to a little town called Tabor City, North Carolina, which is just inland of Myrtle Beach. Um, and he started the Tabor City Tribune. Uh, which had a circulation of about 800 people. Um, it was primarily just uh, reporting on local tobacco farming news because in that day in our history, that was really all there was in the Southeast. But pretty quickly, my grandfather became aware that the Ku Klux Klan was really active in his community. Um, they were pulling people out of their homes and beating them up. They were burning crosses, uh, having motorcades and rallies. And you know, my grandfather had this, you know, liberal arts education and he was a power of the pen, God and country kind of guy. Uh, and he took it upon himself to fight the Klan with his newspaper. Oh, my um, God. Amazing. 
really dangerous thing to do in those days. Um, he began writing scathing editorials. Um, he would infiltrate their rallies and report on what they were doing. Um, and it was a pretty harrowing experience. They threatened to kill him. They threatened to kidnap his children. Um, you know, it went on and on. They threatened all of his advertisers. Um, but my grandfather, um, even though everyone he knew told him to stop, he never did. Uh, eventually, the FBI contacted my grandfather, and with his help, they infiltrated the Klan and arrested over 300 Klansmen, including the Grand Dragon of the Carolinas, wow. Ku Klux Klan, and, um, and that broke their back. They were never the same organization in the Southeast, and my grandfather won a Pulitzer Prize for merit- meritorious public service in 1952, and he was the first weekly newspaper to ever win a Pulitzer, and he was 32 years old at the time. Oh, my gosh. So... That that's that's the story um, of the foundations of Atlantic. There's actually a, a, a documentary on PBS called "The Editor and the Dragon" that is narrated by Morgan Freeman. That uh, if you get online and put PBS uh, "Editor and the Dragon" into Google, it'll pop right up, and you can stream it for free. And my grandfather was actually alive when that documentary was filmed, so uh, you can see it straight from uh, straight from his mouth uh, in a lot of that part of that documentary, which is pretty cool. But so, yeah, that was the real foundations of Atlantic. I like to tell that story to new customers and new people that we're engaged with, because today, 76 years later, you know, the ethics that he established for our organization, I do believe are still very much alive in, in how we operate today. I mean, he was a highly ethical person. He did it the right way. And we try to, to do that as well today. We really try to, to weave purpose into what we do. Um, you know, we're not in the business of optimizing profit. You know, we want to have a healthy business, but, you know, we also want to do good work in the world that, that benefits the planet and all the life that, that resides here. You know, our company, a lot of people wonder how a newspaper became a packaging company. Um, in those days, if you were in the newspaper business, you were also in the paper supply business. And so my grandfather got a lot of notoriety for the, the Pulitzer. And the second part of his business was he began to sell paper products to a lot of the apparel and textile companies that were migrating from the Northeast to the Southeast. We already had die cutters and printing presses. And so we began cutting things like collar strips for men's shirts and underwear and sock inserts. And this sort of like paper supply business was sort of adjacent to the newspaper. Um, and pretty quickly, those same companies were like, can you sell us tape? Can you sell us boxes? Can you sell us bags? And so this distribution business grew up around that. Um, and then, um, you know, my grandfather was also a big outdoorsman, which I think is a, a, a thing I need to note. Um, he, he told me a lot. He's like, I never set out to be a business person. I was a writer. And so he actually turned the company over to my father in the early 70s. My grandfather went on to be a pretty prolific outdoor writer in Florida. Uh, he wrote probably 25 books about freshwater fishing and thousands of articles uh, for people like uh, Field and Stream Magazine and Florida Sportsman. And so that was the grandfather I grew up with was a freshwater fisherman. Um, but my father, Rusty, took over the business in the early 70s, and he really was responsible for turning us into the organization that we are today. Amazing. What an incredible story. I mean, to go from tearing down the Klan through journalism to building, uh, you know, this, this, you guys are the largest privately held uh, packaging company in North America. Did I read that right? 
That is correct. Yeah. I mean, and we, we operate, we're super diversified. We operate in almost every industry vertical, which really gives us a unique position in the supply chain. I mean, we sell packaging to the beverage industry, to the food industry, the medical device industry, the building products industry. We have this huge uh, packaging profile in e-commerce today, which is a relatively new vertical. Really, automotive, aeronautic, there's really nobody making anything that isn't a customer or a target customer for us. So it gives us a tremendous, um, in my opinion, responsibility uh, with how we go to market uh, the products that we sell those customers and and the type of consulting work we do around how they utilize packaging. Um, And um, yeah, you know, for, for being my grandfather's son, it's something really special that, you know, 76 years after he was out there fighting for civil rights, we're using the same organization uh, to fight for environmental rights, and you know, um, through our work uh, within the supply chain. Yeah, I want. I, of course, that's what we want to dive into. And 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 how did you did you begin your journey? Because obviously, you know, starting off as a as a as a newspaper that's focusing on civil rights, building a packaging company, getting into all these different industries. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of people nece- weren't necessarily thinking about sustainability and sustainability and packaging as this company was really evolving and blowing up. And so you're taking over the company now. And when did your sustainability journey start? You know, um, sustainability started to show up in our industry, I don't know, 15 years ago, probably. Um, and I've been doing this for over 20. So I was still you know, relatively young in my career. And it actually kind of started with Walmart. You know, the Walmart scorecard came out. Um, and, you know, I will admit I was a little jaded about sustainability in the early days because it just seemed like a code word for cost savings for Walmart. Um, and, you know, but, it, but in the end, they were trying to drive source reduction, you know, which which does drive cost savings. Um, but again, sustainability just kind of hung around our industry for a while. It's just kind of a, a nice add on, you know, it wasn't something people were prioritizing. Um but, you know, uh, over the years, it did, it did begin to evolve. And, and for me personally, I've just been an outdoor person my whole life. Um, you know, like I grew up as a surfer and a fisherman. Um, when I got out of college, I lived in Park City, Utah. So I'm a diehard snowboarder. I'm a skier. I hiked the Appalachian Trail. You know, I've done I've traveled around the world surfing and fishing. And I just began to notice that a lot of the beautiful places that I like to go were littered with plastic pollution in particular. And there was, it wasn't like a strike of lightning, but like there was like over time, I just started to realize that like a lot of these problems were being created by the supply chain that I was a part of. And more than that, I had a seat at the table because of our business with the largest consumer products, companies and retail brands in the world. They already trusted us with their packaging needs. And it was like, if we can really embrace sustainability as fundamental to how we go to market and not only advocate for it, but actually help these organizations make the shift. You know, if we can help these guys make the shift because they're such large companies, we might be able to have a global impact. And so that really was a big moment for me or a series of moments where uh, I sat down with our leadership and just said, guys, we built a business on teaching companies how to efficiently use packaging to reduce damage um, and also to reduce cost. And if we just modify that a little bit and get a lot more conscious about the materials that we're selling, we start creating infrastructure for closed loops like this can become who we are as an organization. 
Um, and um, I really felt like our industry overall had a real intentional blind spot and we're not looking at the footprint that we were creating, the negative footprint. And so that, that's really kind of how it all began for me. So I'm going to bring Caroline into the conversation here. You know, I've been going to sustainability themed conferences and sustainability and packaging conferences. I was just at SUSPAC last week in Chicago and, you know, for years now, I mean, over, over a decade and I've seen, you know, it seems like a lot of the, the focus has really been on marketing <laughs> as opposed to, as opposed to real sustainability. It seems like there's a lot of different companies that are just trying to outcompete each other on, on marketing as opposed to, you know, how do we actually transform these systems that are creating all, all this waste and problem in the first place? And I know you've, you know, you've studied this uh, in school. Uh, you've been, you know, Yale School of Forestry, you know, Reed Leaf said, I've been been a big fan of Reed's for many, many years. Talked to him about EPR 20 years ago. And what are you seeing in the space and the evolution of the space since, since you've joined it? It's interesting that you mentioned how sustainability had this, this curse of being put under marketing for, yeah. for so long. Actually, when I was uh, trying to navigate into sustainability careers, one of the pieces of advice that I kept getting is just make sure you don't fall under marketing. Just make sure you don't fall under marketing. This needs to be a strategy. It's, it's a strategy. It's a strategy. It's a business this, strategy. Yeah. This, this is business strategy fundamentally. I mean, we're really coming coming in and, and having to rethink the way that business is done. I mean, for a long time, like as, as Wes said, packaging was this, you know, one step in, in the supply chain. We weren't making the products, we were packaging it. And then once it got to the consumer or the end user, you know, packaging's hands were, were off of it. And now, you know, we're seeing this, this huge movement towards thinking about the supply chain more holistically and thinking, you know, even if we're just in the packaging part of the supply chain, we need to be thinking about where the product is coming from. What happens to the packaging once, uh, once someone's done with it, what could this ultimately be turned into? I mean, it's pretty radical that packaging companies are needing to think not only about the function of their packaging in its first life, but also thinking about what could this become in its second, third, or fourth life. And so that's that's really um, that's really kind of revolutionary. I think one of the other things that I'm beginning to see, and also like personally pushing for myself, is more nuance in how we talk about sustainable materials. And that's actually in part how I found Atlantic uh, when I was looking for sustainability jobs, I literally typed into Google sustainability um, packaging, North Carolina. <laughs> it was the first thing that came up. And as I started looking at the thought leadership that Atlantic was putting out, videos of Wes talking about this, I was just really grateful to see that the conversation wasn't about, hey, we found the silver bullet to packaging. Because as, as anyone who's really plugged into this conversation knows, there is no silver bullet. There's no silver bullet. There's no silver, there's no silver bullet. So yep. Atlantic was talking about source reduction, um, functional packaging, preventing damage of products, um, shelf life and preventing food waste, talking about when to use different types of material based on what the end, um, what the end user was likely to be able to do with it. I mean, these were the kind of nuanced conversations that looked both up and down the supply chain that I thought were important as someone who was kind of coming from the more like academic circular economy background. And I think we're beginning to see customers, our customers, like big CPG companies, be willing to have more of those nuanced conversations, which uh, gives me a lot of hope. 
Yeah, so let's 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 dive into that a little bit. Let's let's nuts and bolts it for the audience here. So talk about, you know, specifically how you guys are approaching this sustainable materials conversation and then the types of, of products that you're developing in order to help your customers uh, you know, get more sustainability throughout their supply chains. I'll, I'll start and I'll throw it. Okay. What, what, what our audience can't see is you guys just had this very cute moment where you looked at each other and you're like, okay, who's, who's going to answer this one? Where, where are we going with this? Okay. <laughs> we're, we're both chomping at the bit. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, I think, you know, in a general sense, you know, we've shifted. I mean, the world's, word sustainability to us is really means closed loops. I mean, we are, we are trying to create closed loops with whatever part of the supply chain we're working in. Um, and I think initially, you know, the realization that we had to have was historically, and, and Caroline sort of referenced this, you know, once we sold packaging, you know, we didn't really think about what happened to it. You know, and so the paradigm shift is, you know, we now acknowledge that if we are selling a product that has the potential to become pollution or even of the potential just to end up in a landfill, we have an inherent responsibility to be a part of the conversation and maybe a part of the infrastructure to create that closed loop. And, and that's been a pretty significant shift for our organization. And we're really trying to push our industry to go in the same direction. And in simple terms, we look at our business in really two categories. I mean, traditionally, most of the packaging we sold was B2B packaging. You know, logistical packaging, people shipping large pallets of goods from one destination to the other. But in, in recent years, a lot of our business has grown in this B2C world with the rise of e-commerce. So when we're looking at the B2C world, the, the closed loop piece of it, we are reliant on, you know, the infrastructure in towns, you know, blue bin programs. So for for us in that world, like right now, we are really helping our customers shift to more fiber-based solutions because um, not, not that that's a panacea, not that it's a destination, but right now we can recycle fiber-based packaging in all 50 states in this country. And if it ends up in the environment, it breaks down in a reasonable amount of time, you know, so, and the technology for protective packaging and parcels um, has developed to a point that we've got a very broad offering and dynamic offering of protective packaging options that are not single-use plastic and are fiber-based. You know, in the other side of our business, in B2B packaging, well, the, the closed loops, we're not relying on a blue bin. You know, it's I'm selling packaging to Coca-Cola or I'm selling packaging to Procter & Gamble. In that part of the supply chain, I actually believe it is the private sector's responsibility to create those closed loops. So, you know, and, and we don't have a war on plastic. I mean, there are certain areas of supply chain where we think plastic is necessary. One of those areas would be stretch film. I mean, stretch film's radically efficient. I can ship a 5,000 pound unit load of goods with six ounces of film. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, however, in North America, 2.7 billion pounds of stretch film were used last year. And we recycled about 3%. Wow. You know? And so what Atlantic identified is we're the right company to be recycling stretch film. We're the ones selling it. You know, we just got to figure out how to coordinate with the large CPGs. So when they cut the film off at its destination, it gets bailed, consolidated, returned to Atlantic, 
And then we are going to make the strategic decision to invest in the recycling equipment to turn that used stretch film into high quality post-consumer resin that can go back into stretch film, hopefully, uh, as well as other products. So again, different different infrastructure depending on B2B or B2C, but it's what Caroline referenced. You got to be really analytical. There is no silver bullet. You got to analyze the area of the supply chain, the infrastructure that exists, the geography that you're in. And then you have to have a level of transparency and collaboration with your customers and your suppliers because this takes coordination. We can't do this alone. It requires a lot of coordinated efforts. Yeah, that's that's where I was going to go with that, you know, because it, it even for a big company like yourselves, you can't you can't do it by yourself. And and this has been one of the reasons why, as we were discussing earlier, why Upstream has been so focused on getting EPR for packaging laws established so that we are ensuring that the funding is there and the financing is there to build the systems that that the shared platforms that all that you guys and all kinds of other companies can use to get your packaging back and do something useful with it. So, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're recording this in March, 2023. The legislative sessions are, are, are heating up right now. EPR is a hot topic. And I think, I think we're tracking 44 bills in 18 States right now. Where are you guys in this EPR packaging conversation? Um, we have gotten into it really heads first. We dove right in. So um, when Maine and Oregon passed in 2021, that was actually the year that I, uh, that I started with Atlantic as an intern and was thinking like, oh my gosh, I think this is going to be big. I think this is going to start uh, really dispersing to to a bunch of different states. And so I started looking at the different bills, the way that some were more government-led, some were more producer-led. And then, of course, in 2022, SB 54 in California hit, and that's when the conversation really blew up. And that's when uh, we started talking to our customers about it, and they're like, oh yeah, that's that California bill. And we were like, yeah, that's this California bill. This is a really big deal. This is going to level the playing field for a lot of sustainable packaging companies, uh, for a lot of sustainable packaging options and make them more attractive uh, to our customers. And perhaps more importantly, incentivize source reduction. And we're really, really excited about that in part because it's something that we think that we're really good at helping customers do. It's just reducing the amount of packaging that, that, that they use. Um, and then as other bills have been starting to get introduced, we decided that we really wanted to be part of developing those bills. So we have jumped in, um, for example, in the development of the governor's bill 6664 in Connecticut, which has a large EPR portion. Uh, That's been really fun because we've been able to uh, give input on like, well, what do we think about chemical recycling? What makes sense to uh, to legislate about B2B packaging versus B2C packaging. Um, Wes and I both testified at the public hearing in front of the Environment Committee for the state of Connecticut. And I mean, you know, as the axiom goes, you know, if you're not at the table, you're you're on the menu. You're on the and, menu. And, and we really think that this could be, that EPR can be very um, beneficial to the packaging industry and to, and to business writ large, if we all come to the table and work on making intelligent EPR. 
Um, and there, there are definitely versions of EPR that are just uh, really an exercise in moving money from one account to the other. And yep. we think that this could be a lot more powerful than that, especially the possibilities for improving recycling infrastructure, composting infrastructure, getting um, getting haulers to be more, more cooperative with the recycling infrastructure. I mean, there's so many opportunities here. Um, and then I was telling Wes this morning, I'm excited because um, Atlantic's home state of North Carolina introduced an EPR bill last week. And so we're, we're excited to come to the table on that one, too, and say, as a big packaging company, uh, we're really invested in seeing this happen. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I, I've been at this for a long time. <laughs> I mean, I, I helped pass the first uh, EPR bill in the country for electronic waste in 2003. And so 20 years ago, my old organization, we were dreaming up some uh, a, a packaging bill. And, you know, I thought within four or five years, we'd have EPR for packaging covering the whole country. Little, little did I know it was going to take 20 years to, to actually get, get to the point where that's now not, I, I think not just a possibility, but I think we're moving toward making that a reality. And, and the big difference, the big game changer is because companies like yourselves have gotten involved and moved not just, you know, from the, from the against to the for side, but actually moving companies in your industry, right? Because that's, it, it, you know, one company by itself, even a big company we found uh, 10 years ago, we, you know, we were working with, uh, with Nestle uh, and they were one of the only brands that was willing to kind of stick their neck out and support EPR for packaging. And we couldn't get anybody else to do it. And this is a big reason why we said we need some kind of poster child for why we need EPR for packaging. And we made a big bet that that was going to be plastic pollution and it was the right bet. Uh, and so I'd love to dive a little bit more into that, right? Because plastic pollution has created some opportunities for uh, for your company. I, I noticed this uh, a new earth initiative that, that you've created, Wes. I'm, I'm really curious to dive into that. Um, I was excited to learn that Wes is a lifelong surfer. I'm a I'm a forty something year old you know wannabe surfer, but I'm 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 putting the time in and I'm getting into it. And I see that you've recruited some really interesting people to become a part of this project. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about it. Yeah, a New Earth project has has really been um, a, a passion project for our organization. Um, not only to raise awareness about the need for this, this, this transition to a more sustainable packaging, um, but, but really finding a way to, to activate that message. And so, you know, I've been pretty outspoken uh, about sustainability within our industry for, for quite some time. And um, a friend of mine who, who was aware of the work that we were doing said, you know, I really think there's a lane here, you know, with the professional surfing community. Um, and he connected me with Peter King, who's a photographer from the North Shore. And, um, you know, Peter and I had a discussion that, you know, the, the surfers, especially pro surfers, are really kind of these canaries of the ocean. You know, and you look at a guy like you look at a guy like Kelly Slater. I mean, man's been traveling the planet for 40 years, you know, and to all these different areas of the ocean. And he has witnessed this problem in real time. And so the idea was like. Can we activate that community and give their voices, which are, you know, prolific voices, but, but can we take those voices and, and transition it into the supply chain where it can actually make a difference? Um, and so we felt like the way to do that was really look at the surfing vertical. Um, and we would, as an example, we took surfboard packaging. We said, you know, at the end of the day, surfboard packaging is not much of a vertical for a company as large as Atlantic, but it was a really cool way to show what could be done, you know, surfboard packaging was 
lot of plastic. It took forever. It was slow, not efficient, you know, not curbside recyclable. And so we worked with John Pazell and Pazell Surfboards, and we created the first ever curbside recyclable fiber-based surfboard shipping system. And we documented that whole journey of going from plastic traditional packaging for surfboards to this fiber-based solution. And along the way, we involved people like Kelly Slater and Kai Lenny and Carissa Moore and Koa Smith. And, you know, they got to be a part of that process. Um, and again, it was about you know, showcasing to the world, like if we can do this for surfboards, we can do this for anything. Yeah. Um, so that was really the idea of a new earth project is let's embrace the outdoor industry because what better industry to lead the sustainable packaging revolution yep. than the outdoor 100%. industry and the partnership will, will give all these uh, packaging resources and expertise to the uh, outdoor industry. And in exchange for it, all we're really asking is for them to let us tell their stories and give us access to these elite athletes. And um, we thought it was a really good idea. Uh, I will tell you two years later, I am stunned at how that community has embraced this. I mean, it, it, you know, it was the perfect timing on the backside of COVID where there was a lot of awareness around plastic pollution and packaging in general. Um, and so um, it, it's, it's really, it's really had a big impact. Um, not only in the surfing community, but it's really had a big impact in the overall packaging supply chain. Um, people are really paying attention in our industry to what we're doing now. Um, and, and I do believe a new earth project will continue to have a really big influence uh, on where we go because we're now taking uh, that type of content and storytelling and presenting it to other organizations that are not in the outdoor industry and saying, you know, you, you know, whatever industry you may be in, we, we can tell these stories and celebrate this transition with you too. And so my dream is, and my hope is that sustainability becomes something that organizations don't think they have to do that they want to do. Yeah. You know, th th this is, this is the right thing for our brand. This is ethically the right thing. We want to communicate to our customers that we care about these environmental issues and our packaging in particular symbolizes our commitment to that standard. Yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, I've, I've been really struck by that. If you really want to have culture change, you, you need to engage the people that are shaping culture. And I mean, there are, you know, in the outdoor sports and adventure world, like, I mean, even, even people that aren't surfers themselves, they love watching surfers on, on YouTube and on TV and on Instagram. And, you know, that they, you know, these surfers like Kai Lenny that have, you know, millions and millions of followers and people love to see the incredible stuff that he's doing on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, you know, they have a, they have a big influence, especially on these issues because they're helping to connect people, especially people that don't live anywhere near the ocean, right. To the incredible experience of being connected with the ocean of being on the ocean, um, you know, riding these big waves and, and then bringing people into oceans issues. And I, I remember, um, you know, eight years ago, I had this incredible opportunity to go on a, on a cruise, it was a research trip from the uh, Bahamas to Bermuda, and we had the Malloy brothers that were that were professional surfers that were part of that trip. We had Kimmy Warner, who's a, a spearfisher woman, free diver. Uh, we had you know Mark Cunningham, who kind of invented the sport of big wave body surfing, and you know Jack Johnson, a bunch of really interesting people that were on this trip that was put on by an organization that we partner with, some, our good friends at the Five Gyres Institute. They were doing this research trip, and part of what they wanted to do was to connect, you know, more 
Ocean's Adventure athletes to this issue to kind of show them up close and personal what it was all about. And they've been, Five Gyres has done an incredible job, you know, being ambassadors uh, and, and creating ambassadors around this issue of plastic pollution uh, and connecting more and more people to it. But, you know, you guys are at a, you know, a whole new ball game now because, you know, the word is out, right? I mean, eight years ago, hardly anybody was paying attention to this issue. And now you got more people in this country that care about plastic pollution than climate change, which is, you know, that's a bit of an issue. <laughs> we're, we're, we're excited with the incredible success we've had around plastic pollution, but we want people to care about climate too. And so, you know, thinking about how you guys are, are selling your solutions you know, how are you engaging your customers um, on on issues like plastic pollution, issues like climate, and how Atlantic can help? It's an interesting question. I'm trying to think about kind of where to start with it. I mean, like New Earth Project was new, but Atlantic wasn't. We had this big book of business. And so we didn't just have to go out to and cold call people and tell them like, hey, the plastic pollution crisis is a thing. These are people you already knew. Well, I think the, the, the real first thing that we had to do um, is tie the plastic pollution uh, crisis to the packaging supply chain, which sounds self-evident. Yeah. You know, but in our industry, like I say a lot, there was a real intentional blind spot. Like people were choosing not to look at it. And until somebody in our industry began to say, uh, hey, everybody, we're creating this problem. And if the supply chain doesn't shift, it will never change. You know, and, and that was the big moment for me when I started seeing things like every year we're putting 11 million tons of plastic in the ocean. And that rate is going to triple by 2040 to 29 million tons. And I'm sitting here going, if that happens, there is going to be plastic pollution everywhere. It's going to be yep. so thick. I mean, it'll be undeniable. And we're sitting here with the opportunity to help facilitate that shift. So honestly, the first thing we had to do is begin to talk about it in our industry. And as a large packaging company with a significant influence and footprint, you know, beginning to have those conversations, which were really uncomfortable for our industry. But, you know, as a privately held company and somebody who really just cares a lot, um, it just didn't sit well with me that the rest of my career was going to contribute to this problem and, and I was just going to ignore it. Um, yep. So yep. It, it, was, it was a bit of a spiritual awakening in saying, we, you can't expect individual human beings to solve this problem. I mean, you know, beach sweeps are great and all, but, you know, at the rate we're dumping plastic into the ocean, there aren't enough. You, you can't ever clean it up. We got to shift the supply chain. So that was a big piece of it. And then the other thing is working with customers to convince them that in today's world, especially on the backside of COVID, COVID was actually, there's a silver lining there because everyone was locked in their homes for two years and they could order anything they needed, you know, <laughs> and so everyone started asking questions about the enormous amount of packaging that came to our house. So it, it created this packaging awareness that we tried to capitalize on and said, hey, if it wasn't true before COVID, it's definitely true now. Your customers are associating single-use plastic that shows up on their doorstep with ocean plastic, and you are being uh, evaluated as a uh, as a supplier to your customers based on your packaging more than you ever have before. You know, so you know, trying to convince and working with our customers to to show them that packaging really has become a brand attribute um, has been the biggest part of it. But again, as I said earlier. 
I don't like the idea of, of finger pointing. Uh, what I really like is trying to convince companies that this is something they want to do. Yeah. This yeah. is good for your brand. Celebrate it. You know, and, and we've seen that energy where, you know, and that's one of the reasons I think EPR can help too, because EPR levels a playing field a little bit. Most of the organizations we deal with want to make these shifts. It's just the dollars that, that they struggle with, you know, and if single-use plastic becomes more expensive through EPR, we even the playing field. I actually think some of the big shifts we've already seen with customers, just the threat of EPR was a, was a helpful catalyst. <laughs> we, you know, we've been trying to make that threat seem bigger than than it's been for for many many years, and and now it actually is legit because <laughs> because the companies, I mean, they they know that within a, a relatively short period of time, we're going to have, I think we're going to have half the population covered, you know, under EPR laws uh, relatively quickly. And so the companies are going to have to adapt um, or they're going to be on the backside of it. And so you guys, the fact that you've been leading on this and helping to even shift uh, perspectives in your industry, I'm, I'm assuming that you guys feel like you're well positioned as, as the EPR laws start to get passed from one state to another. Is that true, Caroline? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think another place that we're trying to shift perspectives and stances a little bit is in helping people make the connection between the plastic pollution crisis and climate change. Um, as you said, like the, the plastics pollution problem has garnered um, perhaps more attention or has captivated uh, more like average consumers in part because it's such a visible problem, whereas climate yeah. change is this kind of esoteric, ethereal, like I can't see a carbon dioxide, you know, atom in the atmosphere. Like that's, that's right. really challenging right. for people. But I think I think we're beginning to be able to articulate a little bit better the fact that plastics pollute at every stage of their life cycle. Unlike other materials that we have available to us, there are some estimates that say that the plastic industry's emissions could outpace those of the coal industry by 2030. I mean, we're talking about a fossil fuel byproduct here. And um, and, and that that's important. And even if you just kind of back up to the circular economy discussion writ large, when we, you know, when a lot of people think of emissions having to do with climate change, they think of cars, they think of light bulbs and energy. But a lot of times what people don't necessarily think about is the embodied energy in our stuff. In our and stuff. that stuff includes packaging. I mean, the, yep. the amount of consumption that we're talking about, the, the freight associated with the transportation to get those products to your house in two days. I mean, all, all of these emissions are important for us to be thinking about as well. And so, you know, there, there are some places where we have trade-offs between, for example, recyclability and embodied emissions. But for the most part, we're talking about like, where can we use less, not only to address the waste impact, but also because it's the right thing to do from a climate perspective as well. So I think some of the nuanced discussions that we're able to have with our customers have to do with saying, look, we know you have pretty ambitious net zero goals here. Have you thought about how your packaging fits into that? And most of the time they haven't. Um, and this is, this, is a, this is a way to you know, really think holistically about climate impact and waste impact. Yeah. So just diving into that a little bit more, as you guys know, I mean, we're really focused on reuse and trying to get more reusable packaging in, into food service, uh, into beverage service, uh, you know, takeout, delivery, events, spaces, you know, how, how can we, the, for the stuff that really makes sense, like the low hanging fruit, I was just on a call with somebody, we were talking about reusable beer cups at events, like why, you know, why isn't every stadium in the country doing this yet? Right. Um, 
And so what are you guys seeing in the marketplace? Because obviously the reuse conversation is heating up in the e- in the EPR conversations and debates in states. We're seeing commitments from big brands like Coca-Cola saying that they're going to try to package more and more of their products in, in reusable uh, packaging. You know, where, how are you responding to these shifts in the marketplace? And, and interesting too, like, I mean, the biggest places where we've seen a huge increase in reuse has been in B2B packaging, right? And a lot, a lot of people aren't even aware of, that, of, of what's gone on in that industry. And so I'm wondering if you guys could share a little bit about what you're seeing and how you're responding to it. Sure. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that some of the exciting places where we're seeing reusables innovation is in the B2B space. Actually, something that seems to come up frequently in customer conversations is, well, Caroline, which do you think is better, a plastic pallet that we're able to use a bunch of times or a wooden pallet that we then send for recycling? And that's a complicated question. I mean, you could build in a lot of assumptions and run a life cycle assessment and, you know, come come to certain conclusions. But um, I mean, it is exciting that there are reusables in in the B2B space. I have seen uh, some cool uh, companies that are working on like returnable mailers, for instance, yep. instead of like a poly-based mailer, a paper-based mailer. I, I see a lot of the reusables conversation happening at the consumer level that does fill me with some trepidation about, number one, consumers' willingness to engage with reusables, with having to return, with hygiene issues, having things washed. I mean, I think some of that is, you know, there's been a fair amount of hygiene theater, especially since COVID. And some of it is unfounded, I think. But I think, I mean, it's hard to combat people's fears about things like that. There, yep. there are other areas where I'm a little bit concerned about overall environmental impact. So one, one example is I remember uh, a company that was trying to pilot a, a reuse program for um, ice cream pints. And what they were doing is shipping ice cream and stainless steel canisters to people. And then people could ship those containers back and have them washed and refilled. And I, I mean, again, you could run a life cycle assessment built with a lot of assumptions about how, you know, how much water it takes to clean a steel ice cream pint canister, the freight associated with shipping it. I mean, all of these different things. I want to make sure that we're not putting the cart before the horse on reuse in some places where I fear that environmental impacts wouldn't necessarily even out. Um, But that's part of the reason why B2B presents such a great um, opportunity for reuses because typically the reverse logistics are kind of built in anyway. Like a truck is already, you know, one of Atlantic's trucks is already running to Coca-Cola once a week. So we might as well take something back from them on the way. Whereas from the, from the consumer perspective with consumer reusables, there's just a lot more friction with like getting materials back. Uh, so I mean, I, I think that a lot of times the, the B2C conversations are the ones that get, uh, a little bit more fodder because people are thinking about, you know, they want to be able to buy their Dove, uh, you know, body wash in a reusable container or something like that. But I mean, B2B is often less sexy, but it's often easier uh, for us to start with. So I'm excited about that. Um, I, I also worry in part about some of the reusables that I think might increase the use of flexible films over necessarily like rigid containers. So uh, another example I saw is um, that in like I think this was for an instant coffee company. I saw this example yesterday. They typically sell instant coffee in a glass canister with a plastic top, 
And what they were announcing yesterday is that you could just keep your glass container and then just buy refills of the instant coffees in a flexible film pouch. And I think that that has some merit to it because glass is resource intensive to produce, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that that might mean that we start seeing refills come in flexible films that are really difficult to recycle. And so, you know, what are the consequences of that? So, you know, that's, that's all a matter of figuring out, well, it seems like people would rather buy a refill in a flexible film than they would to bring their glass canister back somewhere where they could refill it. Um, You know, all of these logistics just cause so much friction. And so they're often the things that give me a lot of hope for the future, but are frustrating to me today to watch the consumer behavior not line up with that potential promise. And I just think we need to be thinking about it holistically. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a frustrating topic. Yeah, I mean, the, you're you hit right at the most important things, right? It's like science based and and reducing friction. And so we've come at this with what do the LCAs say? Where are the products that make sense? How do you build the infrastructure so that you are getting those benefits? And you know, as you guys know, a lot of people don't realize that most of the impact for a for a package is way upstream of the consumer, <laughs> right? So it, it is the cutting down of trees, it's the drilling for fossil fuels, it's, it's, the, it's the shipping, it's the, it's the you know, refining, it's the, all of that stuff, which is where you're seeing most of the environmental impact. And so if you can make that package once and then reuse it as many times as you can, for, for, for a lot of applications, not all. And so this is another thing that some people think is we're the reuse people that we want reuse for everything. We want it to be where it makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so... The friction piece is really interesting because, you know, I mean, at home, we don't, most of us don't eat off of paper plates and throw away cups, right? Like we, we've got a system in place to wash and reuse the stuff for, for the next day. We're starting to see more of that happening with events, with on-site moving away from disposables for on-site. But where we're starting to see some really interesting models is how do you make that idea happen in the city, right? So I live in rural Maine. I don't think we're going to have reusable takeout containers here in rural, in rural Maine, a, city, a community of 2,000 people. But, you know, in a city of 100,000 people, 500,000 people, you know, absolutely. And just like we built the recycling infrastructure, you know, to, to make it so you can recycle everywhere, having that same kind of infrastructure in place for reuse or even tapping into that existing recycling infrastructure so consumers don't even have to change their behavior. Um, one of the things that I think is pretty cool is that the is that the a, a number of microbrewers got together in Oregon and actually had actually had dinner with the guy that started this initiative uh, last week in Chicago, and you know they looked at the LCAs around you know single use glass, single use aluminum versus reusable glass, and they he traveled all over Europe to breweries in Europe. He's like, how do they you know everybody drinks out of reusable beer bottles in Europe? Like why aren't we doing this here in the United States? He looked at the science. Is like the science of that reusable glass container like crushes the single use products. And then he just figured it out. Like he created some, some industry partnerships in the state that made that a reality. And the consumer, like you might not even know, like that's the cool thing is that you're just using that collection system that's built around bottles and cans for the the deposit system in Oregon. And you might not even recognize that your favorite beer or cider just got moved into a reusable container because you're just, oh, I put it in this bin or, and then it goes here and, and then we're good to go. And so I think when you're able to leverage the infrastructure that already exists, like that really helps, you know, get get to scale on some of, some of these initiatives. One of the reasons I actually at least um, 
philosophically was in favor of the, the the EPR bill that was proposed in Hawaii because the way that bill was structured, it was just five years of basically a pilot where they're going to attach some fees to packaging to raise 18 to $20 million a year for five years to pilot reuse to figure out where it would work. You know, and on an island nation with a very modest population for the big CPGs, the tax dollars are not a big deal. It's not like we're talking about half the country or the state of California, a little state that has a, you know, there's only a finite amount of space in Hawaii for landfills and recycling centers too. So, um, you know, like I said, from, from a high level, I really think the idea of let's pilot some of these things and see what works. Cause it's the same thing that we do in our business, you know, like, you know, most of these these circular systems, there's no playbook. You know, we're sitting around the table with our customers and our suppliers going, how do we figure this out? I mean, yeah. one of the areas we're looking at, you know, for recycling stretch film, as, as a matter of fact, is the logistical piece and the consolidating of bales is really important or the freight will eat you alive. So we're, we're looking to partner with some outside companies that are already in sort of the recycling consolidation business to find drop-off depots around the country where maybe over time, any company in America can drop off a bale of stretch film at these depots around the country that then can be picked up and efficiently shipped to a recycling center, maybe at Atlantic Packaging. But again, you know, we, we have to be willing to do some deep sense-making and some collaboration and some critical thinking about new ways of operating in the world. Um, and again, you, you mentioned like the stadium thing. To me, like that's a real no-brainer. You yeah. know, a, a high density of single-use products all being used right there together. You know, creating a structure in that environment is a great place to start. Um, yep. So yep. I, I certainly commend you guys on the work that you're doing because we need outside-the-box thinkers. No, I, pr- I appreciate that, Wes, and I appreciate that. I know we're, we're we're running up on time here, but I guess my my last question for you guys before I let our audience know where they can stay in touch with Atlantic Packaging and stay connected to y'all is um is is really like what you know what does an industry need as far as like a collaboration platform so that you guys can actually work together. I know that there's issues around you know competition. There's there's issues around antitrust. How do you navigate those when you're trying to create collaboration across an industry or across a sector uh, to, to get some of these initiatives you know, uh, at scale? One of the things that I have found tremendously helpful that I think we're beginning to see more of is more openness between companies in different parts of the supply chain showing each other their operations. So for example, I I think anyone who's working in packaging absolutely needs to go see a MRF, a material recovery facility. Like you, you cannot be creating packaging that's going to arrive at consumers' homes without having an understanding of how a MRF works and that, you know, and what, what is likely to get sorted, what's not likely to get sorted. I mean, we need to see that we need to be open with each other to show each other that kind of thing. And then similarly, um, you know, being able to show each other things like, here's what an e-commerce fulfillment center looks like. Yes. Here are the challenges yes. moving from a poly mailer to a paper mailer from a labor point of view. I mean, just seeing those things allows us to get out of our silos of being, in our case, just in the packaging industry, just in this middle part um, of the supply chain and, in, in, and see like, what are some of those issues that, again, could cause friction either further up the supply chain or further down the supply chain. And I think that there are, um, I think that there are, there are groups that 
that are working to show each other that kind of thing. I've been really impressed, for example, with the Sustainable Packaging Coalition. I think that they do really good work in um, at their events of letting different members or other organizations show each other those kinds of operations so that we can have those kinds of conversations. That's been really transformative to me. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with everything Caroline said. I think the through line that has been the big shift in our industry, but that needs to continue to evolve is designing packaging for recycling. 100%. Historical or reuse for that matter. Like historically, that has not been a priority. Yep. <laughs> you know, like that wasn't even a thought. You know, yep. we were, you know, form, function, cost, effectiveness, maybe marketability, not recycling, but today, yep. that is a huge driving force in all the new packaging innovations. And that, that to me, and competition helps there. You want yep. people competing for the next best, you know, most functional, sophisticated, and highly recyclable packaging. So the free market, if, if, the, if the through line, if the target is designing for recycling, the free market and competition actually helps uh, the innovation in that space. And so to me, that's where our industry needs to coordinate. And I believe that is happening. And certainly a New Earth Project and Atlantic Packaging uh, are on top of the mountain screaming, let's do this. <laughs> well, that is a great way to, to wrap up our show. Uh, and, and so where can where can folks uh, stay in touch with you both and, and where can they learn more about what Atlantic Packaging is up to and the, and the New Earth Project is up to? So we're really, really active on social media. Um, we believe that social media is an incredible tool for collaborating globally um, and getting the message out to as many people as possible. So I'm really active on my LinkedIn page. You can just find West Carter Atlantic Packaging. Um, we also have a new Earth Project. A New Earth Project has an Instagram feed and a Facebook page and a LinkedIn page. Um, Atlantic PKG at Atlantic PKG is also on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, LinkedIn is definitely the place to find my uh, my screeds about the issues in in, in the packaging <laughs> world. So yes, love love generating discussions there at Caroline E. James. Well, Wes and Caroline, it's been a real pleasure having you guys on the show. I look forward to our next conversation. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Thanks yeah, for thank having you, us. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.